I'm Susan Freeman. Welcome back to our Property She podcast series, where I get to interview some of the key influencers in the extraordinary world of real estate. Today, I'm delighted to welcome a real radical, Tom Bloxham, co-founder and chairman of award-winning real estate developer, Urban Splash. Since founding Urban Splash with Jonathan Falkingham in 1993, Tom has become a brand in his own right with his trademark hat and open-toed sandals. At the age of just 35, he was awarded an MBE for services to architecture and urban regeneration and is considered to have been responsible for the Renaissance of Manchester. Tom is also chair of the Manchester International Festival, a trustee of the Tate, Manchester United Foundation Charity and the Bloxham Charitable Trust. So now we get a chance to talk to Tom Bloxham about 25 years of Urban Splash and what the future holds. So Tom, Urban Splash was founded uh, just over 25 years ago. I was thinking about this. I think we've known each other virtually since the beginning. And an early memory was the uh, British Property Federation Conference in uh, in Brighton, which must have been in the late 1990s, where I'd insisted that we hear from somebody new and you came to join us on one of the panels. Yes, I vaguely remember all these strange property types in suits, but I think we had quite an interesting night out afterwards, didn't we, with Chris Eubanks and Nick Leslow and that big mad lorry machine that Chris Eubanks used to drive around Brighton or something like that. I think that's perhaps I'd actually forgotten about that, but um, you, I remember you caused quite a, a stir in your hat and open-toed sandals, and um, there was particular concern that you'd been out clubbing all night and that you might not be uh, sufficiently alert to do your panel session the next morning. Did I make it? You made it, and uh, you certainly made everybody sit up and take notice, so uh, we achieved the right result. Good. Urban Splash. You started off in selling fire extinguishers and, and posters. How how did Urban Splash come about? Well, sort of way before Urban Splash, um, I suppose I came out of school, didn't really know what I wanted to do, started selling fire extinguishers actually originally, door to door, on the knocker, had a briefcase, can of petrol, poured the petrol over my briefcase, set fire to it and then put it out saying to everybody, don't you want to buy a fire extinguisher? And of course, not many people wake up in the morning thinking they want to buy a fire extinguisher. But it's actually just great training. It teaches you how to sell uh, it teaches you more importantly how to deal with rejection, which we all get a lot of in life. From that, I went to university, went to Manchester, thought um, I needed to, I developed quite an expensive beer habit by this time, so I thought I needed to make some money. Thought, how shall I make some money? What do students want to buy? They all want to buy records. So, my first student grant check, I bought a load of records, but actually bought all the wrong records, made an absolute failure of that, couldn't sell any. Um, was really quite stuck because I'd spent all my money on the records, wasn't selling them, but I noticed all the students had bare breeze block walls and wanted posters. And the record wholesalers were actually giving away the posters for nothing. And the idea was you'd go in and buy 100 records and take one poster. And I was sort of buying six or seven records and taking six or seven posters and selling the posters. And they were actually really cool posters designed by the record companies with some great images on there. And from there, I started publishing posters, buying them from the guys who were in the fly posting, buying them from the record shops, and built up a quite a big business supplying HMV and Virgin, I was in the right place at the right time. Manchester music thing began to happen. We did a deal with the Stone Roses, a deal with Happy Mondays. Factory Records was up in Manchester. Uh, but what I found was you could export the posters and get 50 pence each for them. You could wholesale them and get £1.15, but you could retail them for £3. So the secret for me became to try to find some retail shops. The problem is I had no track record. 
I had no accounts, and everybody at that stage wanted just to lease property, retail property anyway, to big companies on 25-year leases. So eventually I hustled my way into renting 6,000 square foot on the first and second floor of a, um, a shop in Oldham Street. I think I paid two grand a year rent, got charged 25 grand a year service charge. I was totally naive, didn't know what a lease looked like. Obviously didn't, couldn't find a good solicitor, neither one there. But the space was too big for me to sell posters and I had to find a way of funding the service charge. So I ended up subletting it, splitting it up, doing, keeping a bit of space to sell my posters, sublet the rest of it to friends who are also a load of young entrepreneurs like me selling jeans and records and tourists and made more money pretty quickly from subletting the space than selling the posters. So I thought, hey, up, I must be into property. So you've just celebrated 25 years of Urban Splash with a series of exhibitions which you called It Will Never Work. Well, depending on what you set out to to achieve in the first place, it seems to have worked uh, pretty well. I think you've developed around 5,000 residential units, 2 million square foot of commercial property. Don't call them residential units. We call them homes. Homes. I actually hate the way we refer to (laughs) places as units. We're building people's homes. Let us never forget that. Quite right. Anyway, 5,000 is a big number. It seems to have worked um, pretty well. Yeah, I mean, the, we, we were looking at the exhibition after 25 years' work. I think what's interesting about Urban Splash, it was on a whole variety of different things, some residential, some commercial, some refurbishment, some new builds, some modular housing, some retail, some office, some residential, a whole series of different sort, sort of products around the country, old Victorian mills, some Art Deco buildings, some concrete buildings, some very contemporary architecture. And we were trying to look for common threads and I suppose the one we really found is most of the things we pick up are funny things and nobody else wants that people think will never work and even going back to the very beginnings of Urban Splash um, we started doing residential development in Liverpool the first scheme and nobody lived in the city centre and actually the very word urban was a negative word it was urban blight, urban deprivation urban decay, urban task force we were one of the first companies to take that word urban and use in a positive way urban splash. And so we were made out initially to be saying um, we're almost evil, forcing people to live in the city centres where you couldn't buy, literally you couldn't buy a pint of milk or a loaf of bread. Why would anybody want to live in the city centre? What are you doing? It'll never work. And then we started developing new public squares outside the buildings. Um, we said, actually, we go to Spain or Italy or France and everybody sits out in the square. And people say, you won't do it in England. I say, why not? You do it when you go on holiday to Spain or France. And uh, people say, well, weather's no good. And we actually literally had to get the meteorological report to prove the weather was no, no worse in uh, Liverpool than northern Spain or Italy. Um, I thought it always rained in Manchester. It never rains in Manchester. The sun always shines is a myth put about by the southern media. And then when we did other schemes like Fort Dunlop that nobody had managed to do or the Midland Hotel in Morecambe or the Park Hill Flats in Sheffield, you know, or more recently modular housing, sort of many people have said it'll never work, which we take really as a provocation and as something that makes us think harder and perhaps work harder and try harder to make sure things we do or try and do, do make them work. It's gone pretty well. There was um, There was a rocky period after the... 2008 financial crash and I think you've said in the past you could have shut up shop but um, you held on and came through at the other end but um, it must have been uh, must have been difficult after the upwards only trajectory and I mean how did you how did you cope with that and what what did you learn from that period? 
Yeah, I mean, it was very tough because we'd sort of spent, I don't know, 15 years on a entirely upward trajectory, starting from literally a standing start, no capital, just through reinvested profits. We grew the business to a value over 100 million, at least an asset value of 100 million. Then all of a sudden, the world collapsed around us, the global financial crisis. We were right at the epicenter of that, doing speculative northern residential property. Um, we had nearly 300 million of debt. A lot of that was um, invested in work in progress in holes in the ground in Sheffield and Bradford and Manchester and Bristol and Leeds. And it was really quite a tough time. And we very rapidly went to a negative balance sheet. We started most weeks with solicitors in the room deciding whether or not we were a going concern. Um, we had to reduce from over 300 people to 70 people. We reduced the spend on build um, works from 10 million a month to a million a month in a single month without any litigation. And so it really was crisis management for five years and effectively working for the banks and the debt holders. And most of the people in our position simply threw the keys back and disappeared. But I suppose we had an arrogance or a stupid optimism or faith or belief in the brand that actually if we kept with it, it would be okay. So we worked very hard with our stakeholders. We worked very hard with the banks. Literally went to see the government, explained to them the situation that actually companies like ours would go to the wall unless of some sort of support. We helped the government come up with a system called Kickstart. In the middle of the recession, we raised another £50 million from HSBC and what was then the HCA. And we had a very simple system. We knew we couldn't sell anything because nobody could get any mortgages. But actually, half-built buildings are worthless. They're worth actually less than nothing. A very simple strategy. Let's finish everything we've got started. We'll sell what we can, which wasn't much, but we went through rest. And so we actually got it all completed and um, you won a number of awards for those. And the ones we couldn't sell, we rented. And we built up a big rental portfolio that was income-producing and st- started to head back uphill and get some value back. Um, and then did a number of deals to refinance uh, the business and come back out with some um, headroom at the end of it all. Well, it must have been uh, must have been challenging, but uh, I suppose you learn from those um, those sort of experiences. Now, you mentioned um, you mentioned brand, and um, I think since the early days, Urban Splash has always been you know really ahead of the game and understood what brand was about. And you know, at a time when the rest of the property sector didn't really uh, recognise brand as important, so. Um, do you think that the rest of the sector has come come to terms with the importance of brand or um, are we still behind the game on that one? I, mean, I think it's behind the game in other sectors. If you look at this value of the stock market in, I think, 1945, 80%, 80% of the value of the stock market was intangible assets, 20% intangible. That's now reversed and 80% of the value of the stock market today is an intangible assets or effectively brand. And if you think about the drinks we drink, the phones we buy the electrical goods we get, the cars we drive, they're all totally brand-driven. And each of those brands is a promise, effectively. Actually, in property, many people are anonymous and actually wish to remain anonymous and as a financial instrument, which is fine. But I believe the future's in brands and I believe the real value is in brands. But all a brand is is a promise. So if you buy a Ferrari, the promise is a sexy, red, fast, racing Italian machine. If you buy a Mercedes, the promise is a reliable, secure, luxurious German limousine, and so on and so on and so on. And so we're trying to produce a brand, Urban Splash, that's about regeneration, that's about great design, that's about affordability, about being cutting edge, about being funky, about being interesting, about being different, about being a disruptor. And we have to keep that promise and be, keep being consistent. 
And getting back to the um, subject of homes, we have been involved in many roundtable debates, uh, largely at the Labour and Conservative Party conferences. And it's a bit like Groundhog Day. You come back every year and you talk about how we can build um, more more homes uh, more quickly. And um, you've been ahead of the game again. You were one of the first developers into modular housing and um, I think you set up house in 2017 and uh, you've now acquired a modular construction company. What are your plans and how do you see modular actually helping to um, deal with some of those problems? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I believe modular housing is part of the future and part of the way to get additional capacity into our market and part of the way to actually improve the quality of the product. And as a process of industrialization. Industrialization isn't something that happened in Manchester in the 18-something or other for 20 years. It's an ongoing process. Um, for instance, sauces that our mothers and grandmothers would have made in the kitchen, we now buy in packets and jars in the supermarket. For instance, my first mobile phone that I bought was cost me two and a half grand, was the size of a car battery, it was absolutely useless. Every time I bought a new phone, it's got better and better and cheaper and cheaper and better specified. I changed my car last year for the first time in 10 years. I bought exactly the same car as I had 10 years before. Only this time it was 30% cheaper in actual money, never mind real value. It was faster, it was better specified. Everything else in our lives are getting cheaper and better. Yet our houses have continued to get more and more expensive and not necessarily better. So to change that, I think we can use factory production and industrialization. So we're really fascinated by this. Uh, the honest answer is probably we're on, I don't know, a couple of hundred modular houses now, fourth or fifth scheme, maybe a few more than that. And we could have probably built every one of those cheaper and quicker had we done it conventionally. But I believe this is the future and we're investing heavily in modular um, construction. We're on our fifth or sixth scheme now. Uh, we acquired the factory from SIG PLC last year. Um, we are investing very heavily in this. And the reason we're doing it is because we can already see the results. Whenever we do the buildings we've done in the past, they've all been great, but we do Roland Yard one year, we do Park Hill the next year, we do Chips the next year. Every time we make different mistakes, and it's very hard to learn from them. When you're producing the same product, you're continually improving it, getting better and better and better. Again, using the car analogy, if you look at a Golf or something, we're on a Mark 7 Golf now, every one is better, faster. We want to do with that with housing. When you're building houses inside the factory, you've got much better tolerances, you can get much better quality, you can really build them quicker, you can build them to better quality, overcome the skill shortage, and get a product that actually feels like a modern product made with modern materials. The way most people build is sort of unchanged since Roman times with a brick, a wet cement, a brick. It's very hard to keep the quality. It's very hard to keep the quality control. It's very hard to get the skills. You have to battle with the elements. You imagine if you ordered a brand new car and one day they delivered the engine on your drive, the next day they delivered the gearbox, the next day they delivered the chassis and they assembled it outside in the rain, you'd go mad. Yet that's still how we build a lot of our houses. And clearly the big house builders are incredibly successful. They're making loads of money, more than we'll ever make. And what they're doing, they're doing very well and very, very efficiently. And they'll keep doing what they're doing, and good luck to them. They're doing a great job. But I think we can do something different and bring additionality into the industry. It makes an awful lot of sense. And uh, you've said in the past that um, the UK will either grab hold of Modular and get on board or be left behind. Um, have, um, Have you got other people sort of coming along with you do you think we're doing we're doing okay as a country 
Um, we're doing okay as the country, and certainly other people are coming on board. You know, LNG made a big investment. Ilki are doing well. Um, uh, Tony Pitchley's bought a factory. The numerous other people, Top Hat, dozens of people are coming to do it. Yet we're still far, far behind many other countries. If you go to Australia, if you go to America, if you go to Germany, if you go to Japan, if you go to China, if you go to Scandinavia, you'll see in other countries a much, much bigger percentage of their houses are made in factories. And, you know, I think we'll see this changing in the UK. We've got a slightly different... Um, we've got a slightly different philosophy to most of the people because most of the people are manufacturing for third parties. We believe you actually need to own the whole of the process from beginning to end to make real efficiencies. So we want to get vertically integrated. The other thing we want to do is we want to put a single product through the factory continually to try to get it more and more efficient. We only do this by having the land, having the sales organisation, doing marketing, doing the whole lot of it. And again, to use a car analogy, you don't get car factories that build um, minis one week and Land Rovers the next week. You have one factory building minis and one factory building Land Rovers. And I believe to get the maximum capacity, you want to get a single product running through the factory. And the secret is to make as many of those same product through as quickly as possible to grow efficiencies. So uh, in terms of of, of targets, if we're looking at um, UK targets for modular homes, what should we be looking for in, say, five years' time? I don't know. We need another 100,000 homes, additional 100,000 homes. You know, I think you could see a fair degree of those extra ones being made modular. You know, I think the existing house builders will continue doing what they're doing. They've continued doing what they're doing for a long time. So from an urban splash point of view, you know, we are executing a business plan at the moment to, to grow us to 2,000 homes a year, which will, you know, give us a tiny market share, 1%. But it'll be quite a substantial business if we can get there. Just moving in slightly different um, uh, direction, creativity has always been very important to you and to Urban Splash. And, and you've said that artists are at the vanguard of the urban revolution. Why is creativity so important to you and to what, uh, what you're doing at Urban Splash? Why is creativity important? There are all sorts of ways to answer that question. It's a difficult question. I mean, I suppose in a fundamental way, the art or culture, what separates us from animals, you know, and all animals do is propagate and eat and die and deficit themselves. We love, you know, whether it's music or art or architecture or film or whatever your passion is or sport for that matter. It's, you know, it's, it's what inspires us is what makes life interesting. Beautiful architecture, I think, is really important. I think from an urban splash point of view, we're very focused on product. And the analogy I use is Apple and IBM. When we were kids, IBM was a massive company. Apple was a tiny niche company. It was very, very expensive. It was only used by graphic designers and the odd architects. What Apple did is focus very, very much on product, 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 and design. And they worked incredibly hard to make that product better, to sell it in really imaginative ways. And you've seen the size of Apple grow and grow and grow till now they're the most valuable company in the world. Yeah, and far outsize um, IBM. And what we certainly want to do with Urban Splash is make beautiful homes and beautiful workplaces, places that we would like to live in and work in ourselves. And that's why, you know, it always annoys me when people talk about unit numbers. We're not making unit numbers, we're making people's homes. And we want to make those as beautiful as we possibly can and as good places to come and live in. And when I say beautiful, it's not a stylistic thing that some people think is a matter of taste. It's not a matter of taste in my view. And I'm quite agnostic about design. And if you look at the things we've done, we've done Georgian buildings, we've done Victorian buildings, we've done Art Deco, we've done concrete, we've done new build. 
we've used minimalist architectures, we use architects like uh, well, also a whole range. But certain things I think are really important to you. To have big windows and lots of light, to have high ceilings, to have double aspect um, homes and apartments, to be on multiple levels, uh, to have great views, to be near water. Um, they ought to have exposed surfaces, all sorts of interesting things that just can make change the quality of your life and make homes beautiful. And we are much more interested in doing that than either in the numbers or in the price. And the government seems to have actually got on, on board on that agenda. And there's a lot of talk now about you know, building beautifully and actually caring about um, quality as well as the um, quantity of units, as, as you say. There's certainly a lot of talk about it. But again, it does depress me somewhat that when you're at conferences that you and I attend and numerous of these, when you talk to the private sector, inevitably the conversation turns to net to gross and yields and funding and unit numbers and delivery. Equally, the public sector all too often are talking about value for money, delivery, unit numbers. And actually, you know, placemaking, I think, is really important, but it does take time and energy and a bit of money, uh, a bit of cost. It should, you know, good design is necessarily more expensive than bad design, but it takes a lot more effort and hard work to do that. And um, there is a lot of talk about it at a high level. It still depresses me when you see what we're actually building, both from the private and the public sector, that too much of it is actually the mediocre. And the planning system we've got in the UK actually rewards mediocrity rather than exceptional things. In terms of exceptional things, I, I always think that nothing epitomises your style as well as your house in the south of France, the bubble house. And um, for for our, our listeners, you actually have to see it to um, to understand uh, how amazing it is. It's made up of concrete bubbles. Everything is circular, I think, as far as as far as um, I, I've seen. Um, everything from the um, the windows, the doors, the beds, the sinks, the pools. Um, it's quite uh, it's quite extraordinary, and I think also unusual to have bought uh, the house with the um, famous architect uh, Anti Lover in residence he actually lived in the grounds for, uh, for for quite a while how did you how did you actually come to buy this amazing property i was the only person stupid enough uh, we were the only people stupid enough i think to want to take on this uh rather strange half-built um building that had been started in 1969 has spent 30 years in construction uh was unfinished had been built without planning permission They'd rectified it after a court case by listing it um, as we you know, unintentionally, when we bought the house, we inherited the architect who was living in the small house um, in the back garden. And it was all a bit of a sort of crazy story. But it was one of those things where I thought I could possibly do something with it. And um, we spent four or five um, quite joyous years actually working with Auntie Lovac, who was 84 when we bought it, 94 when he sadly passed away a couple of years ago, restoring it, building it and bringing it back to the, um, hopefully the former glory. But yeah, we're very lucky to um, to have been able to be part of his restoration. And it's an interesting uh, modern building, a rare 20th century listed property in France. And when you when you look back over the last 25 years plus of uh, Urban Splash. With the advantage of hindsight, um, what are the things that you would have done differently? I mean, there's a hu- huge 
number of things that I've done differently. And whenever I go to one of my buildings, people say, oh, you must be very proud of this. And all I see is mistakes. And every one we've made mistakes and we could have done things differently. And there's a huge number of um, of different mistakes we've made and you know different things we could have done and we could have sold out before the last crash. But actually, you know, as you know, we regret nothing. Because I think driving through it all, I've been incredibly lucky. I've got the best job in the world. It's like having a giant full-size Lego set. We've never lost our ambition to try to make some really interesting places and some really interesting buildings. I've been lucky enough to work with some amazing people, both my colleagues. You know, my, I, The only way I've ever got anywhere in life is by surrounding myself with people cleverer and better and more intelligent than me. Um, I've got a load of amazing colleagues to work with, but also a load of architects and consultants and funders and various other people where we've shared a journey with them. We've shared an ambition to turn what have been one of the, some of the crappiest places in the country into what are now some of the most beautiful places in the country. And it's been a huge joy to come and do that. So the mistakes and the ups and downs along the way are really insignificant um, compared with the journey that we've been on and continue to go on and had a lot of fun on that journey as well. So if, uh, if, if you're giving advice to young people coming into uh, the real estate sector now, is the advice to surround yourself with people who are, who are cleverer? What, what, what do you say to them? Well, the first advice is Nike advice, just do it. Yeah, so whatever you want to do, just start and do it. And the only way you do it, the only way you learn things by doing it. And you, like me, will make loads of mistakes, but you'll learn from those mistakes. You'll learn very quickly. So I suppose the next bit of advice is to... People say, I want to become property development. So what should I do? So, well, become the world expert, yeah, in property values in your area. It can be your street, it can be your village, it can be your town, it doesn't matter. But follow everything. Become totally passionate about it. You know, get on right move, get on those things. See every property that comes up for sale. And some things will come up at the wrong price. Then have a real passion. Don't be buying things because someone tells you they're a good investment or they're cheap or is that buy things because you believe in them and you think you can make them great and never develop anything that you you would want to live in or work in yourself. And then I suppose it's being absolutely determined. You know, people have said everything we've done will never work. And you know, listen to everybody and take as much advice as you can from people you admire and respect. But then you have to do what you think's right and what you really want to do. And there's not one strategy or another strategy that's right and wrong. It's about finding the strategy that's right for you and go and execute it. And I think you said at the beginning, get used to rejection. I suppose that that is get something. Get used to rejection there, yeah, because you get lots of that. And in urban splash speak, are you a schemer or a dreamer or both? Uh, well, we say schemers and dreamers. So what do we mean... <laughs> um, what do we mean by that? I mean, I think part of that is saying about having a big plan and having a big vision, yeah, and having a dream about the sort of world you want to live in, the sort of buildings you want to build. But dreams without execution are just daydreams, or ideas without execution are just daydreams and worthless, yeah. And you know, typically, I meet loads of people to be their architects who come and sell you this great idea of a great thing, but which is fantastic. But you need to be able to fund it, you need to be able to build it, you need to be able to find the land, you need to be able to make it stack up. All these things need meticulous execution and attention to detail. And so it's having that big vision, having the dream, and then a relentless attention to detail to make sure you can carry through the execution, because without the execution, you have nothing. So assuming that you do have downtime, what what are the sort of things you do when uh, you're not downtime, working? Plenty of downtime. I love skiing. I love um, watching football. And we're lucky in Manchester now to have two very great football teams, Manchester United and Manchester United Reserves. Um, I like drinking. I like socialising. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I work every day of the year, virtually every day of the year. But for me, um, I'm very, very lucky. I found a job to do that I really enjoy doing. So for me, work's not work. I'm always thinking about work and I'm always thinking about ideas and the way we can do things differently and better. So for me, that's fun. But I like walking. Um, I'm walking at the moment from Manchester to London along the canal towpaths, which is an amazing, um, amazing experience. I've walked in the past from um, Flen, where I've got a, um, a ski place near Chamonix, down to um, Bubble House near Nice, along the GR5, which is an amazing walk, 600 kilometres, up and down over 1,000 kilometres every day. I like meeting people, I like socialising, I like uh, things everybody else likes. And one final question. Since you have built a reputation as spotting trends first, what's, what's going to be the next big thing in real estate? I mean, I'm not sure about the next big thing, but I think what we do know is there's some trends that are actually quite obvious, but people forget. One is reurbanisation. Uh, when we started, even 30 years ago, 200 people lived in Manchester and Liverpool city centres. More and more people are moving to the city centre, but actually we've only just seen the start of that. Still in most cities outside London, the most expensive property is not in the city centre, but in the outskirts. In most world cities, you have the city centre is the most expensive, and as you go in concentric circles, it gets cheaper and cheaper. That's not happened yet in many cities. We also haven't had the full range of facilities moving in the city centres like you've got in London. Schools, public transport, shops, cafes, bars, more and more of that is happening, and that will continue to happen. So that's one big trend, I think. Another trend is I think we've got an inequality of wealth at the moment between London and the regions that's um, unsustainable. And by that, I mean, depending where you go to it, the top residential values, for instance, in London are probably, I don't know, £5,000 a square foot. The top ones in Manchester probably are £500 a square foot, one of those valuable cities. It's a tenfold increase. London's a great city and I love it, and it'll always be more valuable than any other city in the UK. But should it be ten times the price of the next most valuable city? I don't think so. I think you'll see a narrowing of that. And then the third one, I suppose, is one that we touched on before, which is um, modular building and industrialization of the building process we're still reliant on itinerant labor in every other industry itinerant labor went out in the middle ages we still rely upon it to build most of our houses that will change um it will increasingly change we'll see people's demand for um better quality um come forward and i suppose the fourth thing is one of style and we're going to see much more modern design coming, particularly into housing. We've seen this already in departments. Um, but if you take an example, when we were kids, all the furniture you could buy was either antique furniture or reproduction antique furniture. And you go into any furniture shop and there's reproduction Georgian or Victorian furniture. Today, our houses are filled with very modern furniture, with very modern cutlery and crockery, with very modern computers and hi-fi and everything. The houses most people are building is still actually reproduction, pastiche, Georgian and Victorian Edwardian. And that will change. And the people, the young millennials, the people of the young generation don't want to look back on this nostalgia. They want to look forward. They want to use modern materials. They want to use modern design. And, um, you know, fortune favours the brave. And I think we'll see a big radical change in what our housing looks like going forward, as has already happened in Holland and Germany and Japan and America and most countries. Well, I thought I knew Tom pretty well, but I learned a few things there. It was really great to hear from Tom Bloxham, the brand, 
who's flouted the rules and defied his detractors every open-toed step of the way. And it sounds as if that is going to continue. That's it for now. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please join us for the next Property She podcast coming shortly. In the meantime, make sure you check out our Property She website at mishcon.com slash property she for all our interviews and programme notes. The podcasts are also available to download on your Apple podcast app and on Spotify and whatever podcast app you use. And please do continue to let us have your feedback and comments and importantly, suggestions for future guests. And of course, you can also follow me on Twitter at Property She for a very regular commentary on real estate, prop tech and the built environment.